The scripture reading this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 follows these verses in chapter 4. You remember, speaking about our light affliction in verse 17, which is momentary, that it works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And then 18, why we look not at the things which are seen. So don't look at what you can see with these eyes, but at the things which are not seen. And now chapter 5 is going to speak of many of those things that are not seen. This is the Word of God. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad." Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, Yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that is, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him, that is, God hath made Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the reading of the Holy Scripture. Turn in the Catechism with me now on the, in the back of the Psalter on page 10 to Lord's Day 16, a part of which we looked at already last week. Page 10, Lord's Day 16. And remember that the Catechism is explaining what we must believe in order to be saved. Catechism has established our misery in our sin. The Catechism is explaining how we are saved by Christ and through faith in Him and what faith is, a knowledge, a knowledge of what, you ask. And the Catechism summarizes the knowledge of faith in the articles of the Apostles' Creed and the Catechism is marching through those articles and it's coming to the articles that describe Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Lord's Day 15 treated the first part of that. Now 16, we'll begin at question 42. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, virtue meaning power, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And 44, why is there added, he descended into hell, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. The Catechism is preaching the cross here. As we began to see last week, the cross as substitutionary atonement. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ was a substitute for all of his people as he hanged there on the cross. The cross is atonement, payment, but it is atonement and payment as Christ is a substitute for us. And that's what we read in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When the Apostle says, and now I'll fill in the pronouns because it's somewhat confusing sometimes. God 
has made Christ to be sin for us, who Christ knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Or if you would reword, reorder the words, God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's substitutionary atonement. We'll come back to that text really as the heart of the gospel in the sermon today. But that's the teaching of the scripture and the catechism in this place. What the catechism emphasizes here is that we have, through Christ and through his substitutionary atonement, victory. We're not defeated. We are conquerors. We have victory that Christ's death gives us over death. And that's what 42 and 43 and 44 teach. It's very simple that the catechism is simply spelling out what the Bible teaches in a passage like Hebrews 2. Listen to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 for a moment. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, we are, he himself took part of the same, Christ did, became like us, remember, substitute, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and give them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And deliver them, I should say, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's really what the apostle is teaching in 2 Corinthians 5. We have victory over death in every respect. The three respects that the catechism spells out are victory over death in the body. That's 42. Since Christ died, why must we also die? Death is, and it explains why we must die. 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? There it spells out that we have victory over death spiritually. First bodily, second spiritually. And 44. Why is there added he descended into hell? And that's an explanation how we have victory over hell itself. Victory over death through Christ in the body, in the spirit, and in hell. Let's see those this morning. We have victory over death in the body. That does not mean that we will not die. The catechism makes that plain. Why must we die? The recognition there is that we must die. The question is, if Christ died, why must we die if he died as a substitute for us? You understand the logic there. But the point of the gospel, when the gospel says we have victory over death in the body, is not that we do not die. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to that. You children remember Enoch didn't die. He was translated. God took him. Elijah didn't die. While Elisha was watching, Elijah got in that fiery chariot and went to heaven. 
And then in the future, there will be some who are living in the time that Christ returns who won't die either. They'll be caught up in the air after the dead are raised from the grave. So though there are some exceptions to the rule, the norm is we must die. We don't uh, escape death. And we don't escape all of the consequences of death either. And that's such a truism, you hardly need to say it. All of us are surrounded by death. That's why I began the prayer that way. The news of Jeremy and Heidi. The news of the DeYoung family whose relative passed away this week. And all of us know death is all around us. We're not going to escape death. You might die when you get old after your body has become weaker and decayed. And you begin limping and feeling other pains. And then you lose functions. And at the very end of a troubled old age, you finally die. But it may be that you die when you're young. The old saying is the old must die. The young may die. And we all know the truth of that too. Now the victory that we have over death in the body is, that, is not that we escape death but is in the first place what death isn't. That's our victory over death. In the first place, what death isn't. And the catechism says it. Death is not satisfaction for sin. That's a marvelous thing when you think about it. When I die, it's not because I've finally fallen into the hand of the great creditor who exacts from all of his debtors all that they owe. Pay, God is saying to me. Now, I say, not so. It's not the case that when you finally lay your head on your deathbed and know that death is coming, that now God is exacting from you the payment that you owe Him. Not so. The gospel to you is, death is not satisfaction for sin. Death is not against you. You have victory over death in that respect also. Think of what the Apostle says in the chapter that preceded the one that we read. In verse 15 of chapter 4, he says, For all things are for your sakes. Just that little phrase is marvelous. Everything is for your sakes. And what the Apostle is doing is repeating what he had spelled out a little bit more at length in the earlier letter when he said all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come all are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's everything belongs to you as though it were a servant to serve your good death also Death is not against us. Death is for us. Well, for us in what way? You can say that death is, we have victory over death, and that death is not satisfaction for sin, but is there any positive benefit in death? And the answer is yes, twofold. Number one, it abolishes sin. And number two, it opens us up into eternal life. Death is an abolishing of sin and an opening for us up into everlasting life. The house of God in which we will dwell forever. 
First of all, death is an abolishing of sin. When you die, sin is going to go to the grave. When you and I die, our old man is buried, finally, never to reappear. Because when Christ raises us from the dead, and that's next week, God willing, in Lord's Day 17, the resurrection of Christ in the body, when God raises us from the dead, what's not going to come up is our old sinful nature. That's gone when we die. And that's victory. That's wonderful victory. Because the trouble that we have now is with sin. My sinful nature. It's a battle. I struggle with it. Don't let anyone ever imagine that a minister, elders, parents don't struggle with sin in their sinful nature. That same struggle that you experience is in us. And all of us groan. Really groan from that point of view too. To be delivered from the power of indwelling sin. And when we die... We are. It's gone. No more battle against sin. And then, third, death we have the victory over. First, no more satisfaction, no satisfaction for sin. Second, it abolishes sin. And third, it opens us up into everlasting life with God. That really is one of the main points that the apostle is making in 2 Corinthians 5. At the moment of death, our soul or spirit is taken up into heaven there consciously to dwell in the presence of God. And Paul says what he does in 2 Corinthians 5, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about when this house is dissolved. He's talking about this body. And someday this body is going to go down. And when this body goes down, we have another house, dwelling place. The apostle is simply explaining in terms that we can hardly imagine that we have to believe that we're going to have a capacity to dwell in heaven, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling all of the beauties of heaven. Yet without this body, we're going to have a tabernacle of God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then when Christ returns, our body is going to be raised, reunited with our soul, and whatever temporary capacity we had to dwell in heaven is now going to become permanent in the body. But in the meantime, the apostle is teaching that at the moment of death, we have a house. That's interesting, isn't it? The apostle does not say we will have, but we have. And that explains why he says what he does in verse 8. We are confident that when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. That's an amazing thing when you think about it. And you need to think about it. I regret many of the occasions that I stood at the deathbed of the people of God when they were dying and did not make clearer to them 
what just happened. We were so consumed with tears and loss that we did not sufficiently talk about what at that moment their loved one was now experiencing. We have a house eternal in the heavens when we die. Now think about this. The point of the catechism is we must die. Let that sink in. The question is why must we die? The implication is we must die. And then answer the question rightly. We must die because, and then you remember what we've said from the Scripture. Ask the unbeliever that question for a moment. Why must you die? And the unbeliever will say, well, because it's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's the natural end of every living creature. And if you ask the unbeliever to explain a little bit further, he will say, but someday, probably, we will conquer death. Because scientists are finding the little keys that are clues to what makes cells die. And someday they're going to be able to turn off those locks or switches that makes cells die. And I am going to be a recipient of that blessing and maybe I will not have to die. But the only reason we have to die now, the unbeliever says, is because it's unavoidable until science fixes it. And you say, I must die in order for my body to go to the grave so that sin may be abolished and there is an opening for me up into everlasting fellowship with God. Why must you die? Not to pay for sin, but to abolish it and to go into the presence of God. And the reason for that is the death of Christ. Now don't forget that the catechism is talking not first of all about our death. It's explaining what we must embrace by faith, the death of Christ. His birth, His suffering, His death, His descension into hell. The catechism is telling you to look at Him. Him. See Him. Study Him with the eyes of faith. And then you may ask the question, He died, why must I also die? But don't forget His death. And the answer to the question, why must I die? In order that I may go to glory is explained by His death. His death. Death isn't naturally an abolishing of sin. Death isn't naturally an entrance into eternal life. Death isn't naturally a peaceful end of every human being. Naturally, it is satisfaction for sin. And that's the horror when you stand by the bedside of an unbeliever and you have to explain to him what's going to happen when he breathes his last or she 
You've fallen and are falling into the hands of an angry God who is a creditor and who's going to demand of you to pay because there's no one who's paid for you. You've rejected him. You don't want him. You are falling into the hands of an angry God. But to a believer, you say, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. So you say to that believer dying, look at Jesus and be happy and hopeful. And you say to that unbeliever who's dying, as Jesus said to the unbeliever who was dying next to him on the cross, look to me, look to Jesus. And there's hope alone in Jesus. We've been delivered from death because, that is, the conquering power of death because of the conquering power, the substitutionary, atoning satisfaction of Christ. Christ was on the cross pulling the stinger out of death, as it were, so that death is no more your enemy. That's why we have deliverance also from death's fears. Now we take another step in this. We're delivered from death's victory in that it's not a satisfaction for sin. It's an abolishing of sin. And it's a passageway into glory. But now we go one step further and say we're also delivered, therefore, from the fear of sin, uh, from the fear of death. In the book of Job that we studied just this past week in seminary, there's a striking passage in which Bildad is speaking to Job with a testimony that's true but doesn't apply to Job. That was Job's friend's problems. They spoke many true things, but they were misapplying those two things to Job. But what Bildad said was true here. And in chapter 18, he says that the light of the wicked shall be put out and the spark of his fire shall not shine and goes on to explain, coming to a reference to terrors. Terrors for the unbeliever. That's the key word here. I'm going to read four verses. They're going to start with terrors. They're going to end with terrors. Listen. Terrors shall make him afraid on every side and shall drive him to his feet. His strength shall be hunger-bitten and destruction shall be ready at his side. It shall devour the strength of his skin. Terrors shall. Even the firstborn of death shall devour his strength. His confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle, and it shall bring him to the king of terrors. Think of that expression, the king of terrors. You imagine all kinds of terrors in your life, things that you are afraid of. Little children are afraid of the dark. Little children are afraid of big dogs. Big children are afraid of this and adults are afraid of that. You think of all of the things that cause you fear and God gives prominence to one of them. The king of all terrors is the fear of death. He's the king of terrors. In fact, from a certain point of view, from that king, all other terrors flow. From the fear of death come all other 
fears. And our victory, the Word of God says, is that God has given us victory over the fear of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, you read that explicitly. For as much as then, then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fear of death enslaves people. But we're not afraid of physical death. We're delivered from that fear exactly because we know what Christ, by the power of the cross, has turned death into. Really, the only proper attitude that we ought to have toward death is expectation and even eagerness. I hardly dare say that. But the Apostle says it for us. We groan to be delivered. That's the proper attitude toward death. That's not because we want to die. The Apostle gives expression to that too. No one wants to die. No one wants to be unclothed upon Verse 4, we that are in this tabernacle groan, being burdened, not, he says, that we would be unclothed. That's not our desire. That makes us afraid. That makes us uncertain. Not that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon. No one desires death. When you're delivered from the fear of death, you're delivered from bondage. And that's the last thing we need to say before we go on to the second point. That's freedom. The apostle says, who through fear of death were always subject to bondage. What that makes me think of is the poor citizens in Ukraine, who right now many of them are hiding in bomb shelters, hunkering down in secure buildings that they hope are impervious to explosions. But just in your minds, I picture them hiding in those basements and bomb shelters. Picture them with the pillows over their head. Picture the looks in their eyes. What's going to happen? When is the next bomb going to drop? Is it going to penetrate the walls of the house we're in? They're in bondage. They can't escape, and they're fearful. And that's what an unbeliever thinks of death. That's what happens to a man who does not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ when the king of terrors lurks around him and prowls in his life. He hides in terror, and that's a bondage for him. And you mustn't be afraid to die. When you die, you fall asleep in Jesus. And when your loved one dies, you hold their hand and you say to them, don't be afraid because you are dying in Him. 
We have victory over death in the body. But we have victory over death in the body only who have victory over death in the spirit. And that's the next part of the sermon. Spiritually, men die. And spiritual death is the rule of sin in the life of a man or a woman or a young person. So that that man or woman or young person practices sin. His walk is sinful. His whole life is disobedience to the commands of God. Spiritual death is not only a lack of spiritual life, so that he has no positive relationship to God. That's true too. But spiritual death is that the power of death enslaves a man or a woman. The power of death dominates a man or a woman. There are many who are afraid of physical death, but they're not afraid of that kind of death. In fact, they think that kind of death is actually living. And now your mind is opened up to the reality of all unbelievers in this world. They think they're living. Many of them do when they prosper and live in sin. They look on deliverance from spiritual death not as victory, but as awful. And they look at living in spiritual death as beautiful, joyful. You take, for example, the man whose life is a matter of gaining earthly fame, pleasure, power, prestige. He sits in his easy chair or his yacht down south. He puts his feet up, he sips on his drink and says, this is living. And sometimes we feel that way too. And now, talking only about the unbelievers, not about us, although that sin sometimes afflicts us, you look at the young people in the world who are unbelievers. And you imagine the advertisements for power and pleasure and drink and possessions. And the description of those advertisements is, this is life. And the testimony of the Word of God is, oh no, it isn't. That's death. You may fool yourselves for a little while that drink and possessions and pleasure are living, but they aren't. Games and more games and drinks after games and buying and selling and getting and vacationing, that's living? Oh no, it isn't. That's dying. And it's only dying unless you live those things in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's separation from God. Don't fool yourself. To live apart from God is death. And the man or woman or young person who thinks that's living is living in no other way than a beast lives. A beast doesn't look up. He only looks out and thinks about the next moment and the next day and what he's going to eat and what he's going to drink and how he can have pleasure and avoid pain. A man who only seeks pleasure and profit and possessions and prestige and power is no more wise than a beast and he's going to perish that way except at the end of his life he's going to face that great judge of heaven and earth. That's a fool's life because as all of us know that leads to addiction that never satisfied and is never satisfied 
and always wants more. You're not free. You're a slave to your passions. But not the child of God. He has victory over that. Now, be very careful here too. As to what that victory is not. The victory that we have over spiritual death is not that we don't sin anymore. Is not that sin doesn't have influence upon us. Is not that sin doesn't even come out from us from within us, our nature. Because it does. Remember, the only time that we're going to be freed from the body of sin is when we die And our sinful nature, our old man, goes down to the grave. Then we're going to be finished with sin completely. But for now, we still have to battle against sin. Deal with sin. All the sinful thoughts that come up in your minds, even during a sermon. And even during singing. And even during prayer. They come up. You ask, how could they come up? The answer is, I have a sinful nature. I have a sinful mind, a sinful will. Everything about me is sinful. I have a new life, but I also have that old life. And that's what I struggle with. Pride, hatred, envy, bitterness. They're all there. I have them. You have them. Our victory is not that we don't have them. Our victory is that they don't rule over us. Our victory is that they don't have dominion over us. Our victory is that they not reign like kings in us, but that we, by the power of the new life in Christ, have the victory over them. That's our victory. We're not controlled by them. We don't love them. And when they come up and even appear in our lives to others, we hate them and repent of them and subdue them and mortify them. That's the victory that we have. And that's the victory that we have every single day. So be clear, our victory over spiritual death is not that we don't sin, that we become perfect. It's not that our old man is gone, but it is that by the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in us, we are not dominated by sin. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Do you know what the, Paul, the Apostle says two verses prior to that? Don't let it. You put those two together in your own mind as you meditate this afternoon on the Scripture. Verse 14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. And verse 12 says, Don't let it reign in you. And that's the struggle as well as the hope of the Christian life. It doesn't rule over you. Why not? By virtue of, and now I use the language of the catechism, by virtue of the death of Christ on the cross, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him, so that the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us. There's the language of the scripture. How is it possible? By the power, that's that word virtue, of the cross of Christ. 
If you don't remember that word virtue and need to remind yourself how you can remember it, just remember that the woman who was sick with the issue of blood touched Christ's garment and he said, virtue went out of me. And that simply means power. And now we have that word here that by the virtue, by virtue of the cross of Christ, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. I need that power, and you need that power. And if ever you minimize that power, then just think of the power of sin in you and in me. Don't think of someone else's addictions, though you can imagine someone addicted to drink. Don't think of someone else's addiction, though you can imagine them addicted to pornography. You just read about those who are addicted to drink and to pornography and to other sins, miserable sins. And you ask them to explain to you how they've struggled mightily to be delivered from those sins. They get home at night saying to themselves, I'm not going to drink tonight. And they drink tonight. And they make a commitment after they're so ashamed about looking at pornography, I'm never going to look at it again, and the next day they look at it again. That's the power of sin. That's the power of addiction. That's the enslaving power of the devil over sometimes God's people for a time. The power of sin is formidable, but here's the gospel. The power of Christ is greater. And though I've only mentioned two of the addictions, there are all kinds of addictions that people have in sin, God's people too. Don't be afraid to admit that. And if you've tried and tried and tried to be delivered from that power and have not succeeded, all your willpower notwithstanding and all the effort you put into it notwithstanding, then go to Christ through the elders and have the Word of God brought to you repeatedly because by that means there is deliverance from the power of sin. That's the gospel. You may be delivered, according to the first point, from fear of death and from, in the end, death itself, but you need now to be delivered from the power of sin, and that's by the power of the Holy Spirit that comes to you in the gospel. You can't do it by the exercise of your own willpower. Sin's power is far more powerful than your will, but you can do all things by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, as you visit with pastor, elders, parents, or others who bring you the Word of God and say, look to Christ. You can, by the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the third place, we have victory over hell. Hell, because Christ had the victory over hell. Why is there added he descended into hell? Because he did. Now be clear on when he descended into hell and what it means that he descended into hell. And don't make the mistakes that many make on account of which there are all kinds of arguments about what this phrase in the Apostles' Creed means. You may read about those arguments. 
and the differences of opinion, but just know this, after he died, he did not go to the place called hell, and then only when he rose from the dead did he exit that place from called hell and go to heaven. That's not the case. He said to the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. That moment he died, he was with the thief in paradise. Rather, the meaning is that in all of his suffering that began when he was a little boy and increased as he got older and then finally when he was on the cross, climaxed, he suffered the agonies of hell. The inexpressible anguish. That was hell. Pains, terrors, and hellish agonies. He was plunged into them during all his suffering, especially on the cross. Christ went to hell as a substitute for believers. And when you fear someday, maybe that's when you're dying, that you're going to go to hell. And with all of your God-given ability, look at and hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ, who as a substitute for you went there. That's your greatest temptation. I like that language. I hope you don't disagree with that language. If anybody ever asks you what is your greatest temptation, don't say to look at pornography or to drink or anything else. Then think about this. The temptation that the devil exposes you to, to doubt that you are going to go to heaven and to fear that you are going to go to hell. Because the devil knows that he cannot take you to hell if you are one of God's elect. But this is his best work to make you fear hell. That's not the fear of some weak people who once in a great while are terrorized by thoughts of hell. That's the fear of all of God's people once in a while. And if you haven't ever feared that, then beware that someday you may. God has forgotten to be kind. He's left you. He's turned his face away from you. He's not going to be merciful to you ever again. And what you thought was mercy in the past really wasn't. You're going to hell. That's your fear. And in that greatest temptation, you wholly comfort yourself in this, that he, as a substitute for you, went to hell. And you rest in Christ. You trust him. And you, who aren't afraid of physical death and don't care about spiritual death and don't embrace Christ by a true and living faith. You ought to be scared of hell. Never ending, never ending anguish and agony and indescribable horrors. That's reserved for you who don't trust in Christ, who don't want deliverance from spiritual death now, but are happy in your sin. 
who aren't thinking about physical death, but ought to, I beseech you, be ye reconciled to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins that you've been covering, hiding, justifying, excusing, blaming others for. Repent of those sins. Lay them all out. Admit them. And find mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you won't be afraid of dying physically. You'll have deliverance from spiritual oppression. And when you stand seeing the pit of hell open up before you, you know that that's not for you because that was for Christ as a substitute in your place. That's the gospel. Be ye reconciled to God. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the Lord Jesus, for His suffering, His inexpressible pains and agonies that He endured for us. We thank Thee, O God, for Him. Now deliver Thy repentant people from fear and bring to repentance those who hear this morning that have not come to Christ, break their hearts and forgive their sins, we beseech thee. But we know thy word is a savor sometimes of death unto death. And who is sufficient for that? But we beseech thee, Heavenly Father, be merciful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.